my profitable multi-million dollar company came to a screeching halt to a big fat plump zero. Ouch, yeah. Panic set in, the fight or flight mode really set in. I had to make some hard decisions. I had to lay off some people. I had to furlough some people. Um, and then the light bulb went off. And the light bulb was for the foreseeable future, my clients, which is, you know, the tech world, were going to realize that they had to continue to do their events and do them virtually. So we were first to market and very quickly with a solution that I thought was so much better than the Zoom meetings that were happening right off. Welcome to the Building to Scale podcast, where we bring real entrepreneur stories that showcase the challenges and successes in building and scaling an entrepreneurial business. Our host, Jeff Chastain, is a business transformation coach with Admentis, where he coaches business leaders and their teams with a proven set of principles and tools helping them gain clarity in and get more of what they want from their business. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show, and we will reveal how you can become our next guest. Hello, everybody. Jeff Chastain here again with the Building to Scale podcast, where I really have the, the wonderful opportunity to speak with entrepreneurial business leaders and influencers in a variety of different industries and spaces, just hearing their stories, both of challenges and successes as they've grown and scaled their business to where it is today. So today's guest with me is Natasha Miller with Entire Productions, a, a corporate and event planning company, which as we're recording this in the latter stages of 2020 here with the pandemic, obviously that's been a, an interesting space there for you this year, Natasha. But first off, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit more about your, your company these days. Thank you, Jeff. It is a pleasure. So you're correct. It has been quite a year for Entire Productions but one of the most exciting years ever. So in March on the 17th, we had planned one of our biggest marketing events that we do every year. Over 800 of our clients from Google and Salesforce and LinkedIn and Apple and Facebook, all of those companies, because we're in the Bay Area, would attend. And it was over a $500,000 event that we put on every year. As you probably know, the date on March 16th, we went into lockdown. So we weren't able to do that event and we weren't able to do any events. So my profitable multi-million dollar company came to a screeching halt to a big fat plump zero. Ouch, yeah. Panic set in, the fight or flight mode really set in. I had to make some hard decisions. I had to lay off some people. I had to furlough some people. Um, and then the light bulb went off and the light bulb was for the foreseeable future, my clients, which is, you know, the tech world, were going to realize that they had to continue to do their events and do them virtually. So we were first to market and very quickly with a solution that I thought was so much better than the Zoom meetings that were happening right off. So we created a variety show foundation for events to take place on zoom or other kind of broadcast media type quality events and that is short fast-paced very interesting segments pieced together like a television show so no one long hour of one person talking we condensed that to 10 or 15 minutes and book ended it with interactive or entertainment and really made it 
an event that people were surprised was so much fun. And the reactions we're getting are, wow, why do we even get together at all anymore? And so we aim to make the events where people are like, oh, this is so cool. Oh, shoot. It ended, you know, that segment yep. rather than, oh, this is so cool. When's it going to end? <laughs> so we've done, let's see, as of today, we'll end the year with over 150 events since March. Oh, wow. Nice. But yeah, I've been on numerous of those virtual conferences these days. And it's just like, this, this wears you out sitting here staring at the screen and it's like, okay, droning on. It's like, okay, when are we going to, where, where's the fun in it kind of a thing there. So that's, that's really cool to hear. So dive into that a little bit more in a bit, but take us back to early days history kind of a thing here. Where, where did your entrepreneurial kind of journey start? I started as an entrepreneur if if I didn't know the I didn't know the term and I didn't know what was happening at the time, but when I was 15, my first entrepreneurial endeavor was playing the violin in my string quartet for the inauguration of our governor in Des Moines, Iowa. And since from 15 to about 23, I played in a string quartet and sang for corporate and um, social events. So that is what kind of thrust me into what I have now, entire productions, because I was getting booked so often that I couldn't do three gigs in one night. And I wasn't willing to turn down the offer. So if Jeff, if you had called me and I was already booked, I would say, Jeff, yes, I can do your, or no, I can't personally do your daughter's wedding, but I can bring in a group that's as good as I am and my group, but probably better and manage them. So at you know, in college, I had multiple groups going out under my name to perform. And I didn't know at the time that it was a business and I didn't, we didn't use the word entrepreneur, but then I started getting bigger and bigger and bigger asks. And in 2001, I did the official thing, got a business license and landed my first really big client, which is a retail shopping area in Oakland. And that was over 20, that was 20 years ago. And we still have that client today. Nice. Yeah. It's always interesting to hear people's, especially kind of origination stories on their companies. Cause so many times it comes from just a hobby or something, some, some need that they came across that, Hey, we're going to do this outside of our normal job or outside of whatever. And then all of a sudden it, it turns into a, a company before they even know it or without even trying in a lot of cases there. So that's, that's cool to hear. Absolutely. I thought that I would only be, and, and only wasn't, it's not a small word word. I thought I would be a performing, performing artist, a yep. classical violinist and a jazz vocalist. And that was okay. That was going to be enough for me, but it definitely segued. And I had a business acumen um, that was different and more robust than most musicians. So I just kind of let that inform me of this next step, which is um, entire productions, which we can talk about a little later, is informing me of my next steps. Okay. <laughs> There's always a next step, hopefully. So walk us through a little bit. So you said almost 20 years ago now with, with that long. So what was kind of the, uh, what transitions have you really seen in the business going from obviously early stage, potentially just you, I'm assuming, to now with... I don't guess we said how many employees, 20, 20 roughly employees, I believe it was. Well, I, it's not that many anymore, but I'll walk you through that. So yes, at first it was the sole proprietorship. 
I may have hired people, um, contract workers and had free interns, and I wasn't interested in having employees. That was not on my radar. Um, I wasn't suited for that at that time. And then in 2009, I rebranded and relaunched Entire Productions. I had a big event. That's when that big event that I referenced didn't get to happen in December, uh, March 17th. Um, we did that at the Rotunda, which is this gorgeous venue. And the photos today I was just showing my daughter are just as incredible as if we had done that event today. So big, big deal. Um, I started taking on a couple of employees very hesitantly. I was very frugal and very mindful of profit. I wasn't going to go into debt. I was bootstrapping. I didn't think about getting any kind of funding. And I definitely didn't think that I was fundable. So I didn't know about bank loans. I didn't know about line of credit. Venture and Angel was for big, huge companies in my mind back then. So I think that's great because we've been bootstrapped and not taken any venture capital, um, which is, I think, sort of a heroic move considering how big we got. Um, so we were up to, I think the, the most employees I've ever had at a time was when we had a branch in, uh, and boots on the ground in Los Angeles and England in London. And that was 15 before the pandemic, we were 12, which was much more manageable. And now we're at six. And let me tell you, the six of us are kicking butt and it is such a great size it's easier to manage. Everyone is doing so great and they're self-managing. So I think I've come to a realization because of this change that I'm more suited to a smaller group of people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you look at um, a lot of people, a lot of coaches will talk about the business life cycle, about where you're going from startup phases all the way through basically enterprise kind of uh, phase. And you really look at it, there's two different phases of basically being the smaller boutique firm versus going over and making the, the growth-oriented growth kind of firm there. And really, there's nothing wrong with being the boutique firm if that's where you're interested in being, that's where you, you want to be kind of a thing there. The, the key to it typically is making sure you stay in your lane, making sure you're not trying to, hey, let's take on this project and this project and this project, because at that point, you're really going to go outgrow what you're capable of, start bringing on people, and before right. you know it, end up in that that larger category there. But it's but I do I do have a secret that I'm so I'm not you know I'm the visionary, and we're using EOS traction language now. But I'm the visionary, and I don't want to manage a bunch of people. But once events start going back to in person, our business is going to double or if not triple. And so at that point, well, before that point, I'd like <laughs> to hire, um, you know, someone to run the business for me, a CEO position, maybe a general manager to COO. I'm not sure how I will do that. But so I'm clear on my strengths and my weaknesses and my desires. So I do, I am definitely of the scaling and growing mindset. I'm just going to do it without me being the one pulling all the strings. No, that makes perfect sense. And honestly, you have to at that point. Once you start getting to that 10, 20 kind of employees, all of a sudden you can't, you can't wrap your arms around it and manage everybody, keep track of everybody, keep track of everything as yourself. And that's one thing that entrepreneurs typically struggle with is making that that change right there. 
So I'm curious, since you went down that path with you being more the visionary type, are you saying you don't necessarily have the, the integrator or the COO type in, in the company right now? I don't anymore. And so we had a, um, a division that was solely meant to produce large in-person events. And because that went away, very quickly after we created that specific slice of the pie division, that's the division that went. Yeah. But I have a strategic partnership with another company that will do all of that for this company. So when large in-person gets back together, I have a strategic partner. Maybe one day we'll merge. Maybe one day I'll acquire them. Um, that's up in the air. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, and I guess for those that don't know it, don't haven't talked about it, the difference is basically like you're saying, you're the, you're the bigger idea person that honestly doesn't want to manage a bunch of people, doesn't want to get down in the details. Whereas the COO type or the, the integrator type is the one that honestly doesn't want to get out in front of the, the big partnerships, <laughs> the big clients, et cetera. They'd stay, rather stay down there and, and, and work with the day-to-day operations of the company, keep the, keep the details running. So yeah, that's, if you can get that kind of mentality, that kind of idea to say, hey, which one I am, stay in your lane, hire, partner with, whatever, to get that other side is, is really critical. So you've seen that at least already, and then we'll get back to it kind of a thing. So um, talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing future-wise with, with the company at this point. Obviously, we're kind of hoping at this point we're going to get back to in-person events, but what what direction are you going now that you've had this much experience with or this much success with the virtual side? Yes. So based, I'm really basing our big business um, upon what our tech company industry is saying about when they can go back to work, which is the end of August currently. So I don't expect any large in-person events of any size to happen until after that. So fourth quarter, maybe. And as they start to roll out, I know they will continue to be um, using virtual as a hybrid solution. So that's where, you know, we've got our, our feet in both buckets. And then I do think that even maybe a few years from now, when live in-person events are a full throttle again, there'll still be a virtual component because businesses are expanding because of this reach. And it's a lot less expensive for people to attend. So I was just on a three-day digital marketing conference from home. I got a lot out of it. I didn't have to travel. I didn't have to spend the money. I didn't have to sleep in a hotel bed. And I was able to make um, friendships with people virtually. So I do not see this going away. And so as you can see, that's a way for my business to double. And the triple goes to during COVID, I opened a premium gifting promo item division and with no startup costs, with somebody that was already in the company that had experience. And we did $150,000 in one month. Nice. Okay. And so all of our clients need stuff. They need gifts for their, uh, their teams, for their clients. They need branded promo items for swag bags. And so that was a really easy venture. And we're not trying to sell to everyone. We're trying to sell to our clients. And yeah, I think that's, yeah, go ahead. But that's, that, to me, that's really the key there is that while, yes, it's a, a new venture, a new sideline, it's still, you're still focused within your niche right there and you're keeping it targeted. You're not going out and saying, hey, we're going to do who knows whatever else kind of extra business yes. on top. 
if somebody finds us or is referred to us, of course, we'll take their business, but we are marketing specifically to our clients. So um, I see that as, you know, another very viable, easy revenue stream. So going back, obviously, with this year, with the, the changes and everything, why do you think business leaders tend to struggle recognizing that changes are needed or what change to make at that point? I think it's probably a lot to do with the personality. And I am someone, I'm definitely a creature of habit for certain things, but I know that I thrive during times of challenge. And so this year, you know, with my business going to zero, clearly it's not there now, but it was there for a couple of months. Um, I have never been more excited and more creative than this time. And I think that is a personality trait. So entrepreneurs in general have some of that, but then there's a subset of those entrepreneurs that really have it. And I'm one of them, but I've seen other entrepreneurs go out really outside of um, their core business and start something completely new. And I'm not exactly doing that. Yeah. Ex except, so I alluded to this earlier, I've taken this time. So I have a memoir that I wrote and it's in its final draft. It's with my agent being um, pitched to major publishers. I think I'm going to pull it and self-publish it because I will make out better in the end financially. And there are a couple of people that are interested in buying the rights to make it into a movie or a television series, which is really cool. But um, I've created, or I am in the moment of creating an entrepreneurial master's accelerator program. It'll be a digital course and it'll be based on the things that I learned while not getting any advisement or mentoring, but also taking into account when I finally did get mentors and advisors, a course that I took at Babson College uh, through the 10K SB program, courses that I took at Harvard and MIT through my entrepreneurs organization, and basically teaching people not only how to brand and market and get sales and increase revenue, but also how to look at their balance statements and their profit and loss and really understand that. I know that I was at $1.5 million in revenue. And if you had asked me at that time in 2015, questions about my financial documents, I did not know the answer <laughs> and I didn't care. Yeah. Well, and so, that's, yeah, that's a struggle for a lot of people. And then, and one of those that, okay, you feel like, and again, we go back to the entrepreneur kind of running the business on gut feelings. Well, I, I feel like things are on track. I feel like, hey, I'm, I'm seeing, like you said, 1.5. We must be doing all right. But they don't really know what's going on in the business at that point. Right. So I, one of the tips that I share with anybody that will listen is that I waited until I was about $5 million in revenue before I even thought about or even knew about what a CFO was. CFOs to me were something that, Salesforce and Google had. Yep. It's not something that I would ever have. And I wish that at the one $1.5 million in revenue that I would have known about CFOs and what the value of them was. So that's part of what the course will be. Interesting. Okay. Keeping people everything that they, that I really would have rather have known 
on the onset. And EOS traction is another thing that I really think is incredibly valuable and missing. It's the missing link for all of those entrepreneurs that are struggling to make their company sing. So tell me a little bit about, um, you mentioned mentors, mentioned coaching several times. What At what point do you see bringing on outside help and what's been the, the value or the change to that? Because at least, again, in my experience, a lot of entrepreneurs, again, believe they can handle it themselves. They, they're all the only one that knows how to, how to yes. do this kind of a thing. And I, most of the time when I'm talking to somebody after the fact, they're saying, hey, I wish I had done this sooner, that there yeah. was so much I really didn't know. So I'm curious. I think I, could have, I think I would have, I, I couldn't afford or I didn't think I could afford to invest in coaching and programs early on. And I really didn't have that much money. Um, in hindsight, it would have helped me scale and grow much faster, but I as a person wasn't ready for that. And so I think the timing was actually pretty right for me. Um, but I think anybody that is banging their head against a wall, <laughs> it's time right then to realize that you cannot do it all by yourself. And if you do, then you're gonna you're gonna run into trouble, or you're just gonna have a lifestyle business. And if that's what you want, that's fine. Well, it's that, and you're like you said, you're you're limiting the growth potential of your company. Like you said, it, it could have been you made it to one point five, but okay, could you've gotten there faster? Could you've grown it, scaled it more, or whatever, been more efficient, kind of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be grow and scale from a people standpoint. It could just be grow and scale from a revenue standpoint, or a yeah. less time for you that you're not working. 100 hours, you're only working 30 or 40 kind of a thing. Right. So what, since you, since you brought it up, what's the the impact been with EOS? What have you gotten, or I guess back up further than that, how did you get introduced to EOS in the first place? I was introduced to it through Entrepreneurs Organization. Um, and I looked at it for a while and I also was introduced to scaling up and I chose after talking to lots of people and reading sort of side-by-side -side reports, I felt that EOS Traction was the right one for me. And so I was already actually implementing quite a bit of what EOS Traction was in my business already, which I'm really proud of. Um, <laughs> but then I found an implementer in the Bay Area, and this is sort of a sad story, but our first day of implementation training was in February. Oh, this so, year? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Changes. And that's when I had a bigger team. That's when I had somebody that was, you know, I, I was in the visionary. Um, I guess I was integrator. I, I get those, the implementer and integrator, if they yeah. both would just not have an eye would be better. But anyway, um, so now I'm not running traction as verbatim as I would had I had a bigger team. I don't have a manager beside me right now. And we are in, you know, for the last 10 months, we've been in stealth, just figure it out mode. But I'm in close contact with Emily, who is the person that I'm working with. And she has been so gracious in helping me figure this out and looking at the future when I do hire uh, to expand the company of revving that back up. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say because that's I've I've heard a lot of people that will either have seen the book before or just 
really the bottom line with EOS is it's just basic business practices. So a lot of times you've got pieces of it there, but yeah, when you're talking about getting with an implementer and seeing the, the bigger picture kind of a thing there, that's, that's really the key that I think a lot of people, it takes getting started with before they really start to understand that, okay, yeah, there's, there's a bigger picture system, yeah. bigger picture here than just a couple yeah, of pieces that you may be working with. It's a whole system and ecosystem that makes the company wholly run. And if you have bits and piece of it, pieces of it, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But without all the other pieces, it's not a well-tuned machine. Yeah, yeah. So looking at that, how do you describe or what would you describe a, a great leader on the business being in terms of, okay, what... What, what's what's if you were your ideal kind of role what what would your role look like in your company at that point being right. everything you know these days so i am still the ideas person i am definitely the visionary i am blessed with having a lot of organizational skills and analytical skills now um but i don't want to work in the business i definitely want to work on it so you know for a time i will be training right training and making sure the culture is understood and then I'll let go. And if we set up our goals and metrics in these, you know, sizable, these bite-sized chunks of, of quarterly, um, I can really just maybe spend one day a week, eight hours a week um, working on the business. And then I'll be, you know, working on my entrepreneurial master's accelerator, book launch, book tours, um, doing things like that in, I mean, I wouldn't call it free time, but in the time <laughs> left. Well, it's that, but it's still, it frees you up to go work on the projects you want to work on at that point. Like you said, it's not the day-to-day -day worrying about, okay, how many bookings do we have? Or did we collect this check or that check? Or how many clients right now? What's, what's the latest client fire kind of a thing? It, it frees you out of that. And I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs, because you see the, the growth statistics or the, the life scale statistics of businesses where they say, okay, 80, 90%, whatever, never make it out of startup phase. But then it's that five to seven year mark where you lose so many more. And at least the ones I've talked to, the ones you see, they kind of hit that stage. And it's like, okay, I'm still, businesses work. This is not the fun stuff like you're talking about that I want <laughs> to go do this. I want to go meet with the bigger clients. I want to go do the book deal. I don't want to deal with operations. I don't want to deal with this stuff. So yeah. a lot of times they'll end up quitting and saying, okay, I'm going to go start a whole new business and start this brand new. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, you were almost there. You had this here. Yeah, they're just doing it to themselves again. I actually love the operations and systems. I loved a lot of what it took to build this business up. But as I learned more and more and more and more, I realized, oh, there are other things that I'm more suited to or like more. And there are other people that are great at these other things. So I'm just going to let them do it. I think when I, so we've done, we've been on the Inc. 5000 list three years in a row as of this year. And the first year I was interviewed by one of the writers and featured in the magazine because I scored very high on the delegation um, strengths finder. Yep. So I was able to let go. I learned how to let go and delegate. And I think that's such a huge key in all that we're talking about. Yeah. And that's really one where a lot of entrepreneurs struggle because the early days you're doing it all yourself. And then it's like, well, can I really trust this person to hand this off and still do it as well as I can? Even though if you really step back and look at it, like you said, this is not something I even want to do. Why, why am I hanging on to 
managing the books. You can find an outsourced accountant or something like that can do that. That's not even what you want to do. But yes. doing that delegation is is tough. I, I've been there, done that before. It's it's tough <laughs> saying, hey, can I really hand this off and trust it? Because honestly, the company's your baby. That's it's what you built. So do you really want to trust somebody else doing that? But to your point, that's really one of the keys right there. If you're ever going to grow and scale beyond yourself, being a, a personal brand, then it, it has to be at that point. But that's, that's interesting to say that you're already uh, premeditated towards that delegation ability, because that's a hard one for a lot of people to learn. And that's probably made things a lot easier for you at that point. Yes, absolutely. So I'm curious, uh, obviously with this year of change and everything, how would, how do you rate transparency in your business or how have you viewed transparency in your business in terms of anything from plans and goals person uh, from the company or even individual side finances, et cetera? How, how did you view that even coming in before this year? And obviously after your, bit of time with EOS there. Yes. So we aren't completely open book, but my team knows um, our gross profit. They know every week uh, what the gross profit, they also know their gross profit goals. We don't have revenue goals. We have gross profit goals. So, um, and I think about every quarter and definitely on our kickoff meetings in January, I explain to them what all the f 500 things that go after gross profit before net income so that they understand like, oh, you know, we've done $5 million in business. Like, why aren't I making more of X, Y, Z? Well, here's it is. It's the lawyers, it's the accountants, it's the subscriptions, it's the overhead, the retail, you know, and I think especially for some of my younger employees, they're like, oh, why would anyone run a business? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. So. Yes. So um, I'm pretty clear with them on that. And um, I think that's all they really need to know. Uh, and it's probably all they really want to know. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that for sure. But it's it's interesting you say that because I have seen it a lot, especially with, with younger employees that because you really can't hide it anyways, because they're going to be, you, you've got somebody, like I said, processing payroll or somebody processing accounts receivable. They can tell where the revenue or how much revenue is coming in. And if they don't see that other side of the equation, like you said, they see, hey, here's $5 million coming in. I'm not getting paid anywhere near that. She must be collecting it all at the top kind of a thing. She's just holding it all for herself. Yeah. Versus if you get that transparency to say, hey, there's there's really real operations here, real stuff going on. And then even towards this year, uh, obviously, this was a pretty quick flip the switch moment on, on things shutting down this year. But hopefully, if you've got that kind of transparency, your team can see, hey, revenues are trending down right now that, okay, that's why I'm being asked to take a pay cut. That's why yep. my hours are getting cut back because I can see the company as a whole has been trending that way. So yep, much better on transparency there. Interesting. Okay. So um always want to kind of circle back or wrap up this way, kind of to say, what's the, if you didn't, I know you've talked about several different things, but if we'd gone back and said five years ago, 10 years ago, if I'd only known X or if I'd only done X, I would have been an easier path or so much further along at this point. Mm. Anything come to mind there? A hundred percent the education that I received both free and paid. A hundred percent. And if you're not a school person, that's fine. It's not the same as school. So 
I don't, I'm not really kicking myself because I feel like I came upon it when it was right for me personally. But if we could just back that up a few years, <laughs> then I would have been a lot further ahead. And I can still, you can still use your personality and your ideas. But if you're not armed with great advisement of people that have done it before you or that have seen it in from a different angle that know the blind spots or that can see them for you you're just you're just hurting yourself yeah doomed doomed to repeat mistakes of the past kind of a thing but yeah no that's that's that one's critical i forget what the quote is but basically saying that basically the the phrase we've always done it that way or this is the way we've always done things is is the worst thing or the worst phrase in the english language kind of thing yeah it's like you're you're just if you keep those blinders on and keep focusing. Cause of course, entrepreneurs, we know everything. We work, we're experts here. We don't, <laughs> we don't need that. Then right up until the point you hopefully grow up and then figure out you do kind of a thing. Yeah. So obviously running out of time here, but um, if the listeners want to know more about you or about your event uh, company, where can they go find some more information about you here? So two places for event and entertainment, it's entireproductions.com. And for my entrepreneurial master's accelerator, my book um, that's coming out sometime next year, it's natashamiller.co. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. We'll get both of those in the show notes here. So you can click on those right below and just want to say thank you very much for taking a few minutes out of your day with us here to talk with us and share a few lessons with us. So thank you again. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Building to Scale podcast. If you would like to share your entrepreneurial business growth story, please visit buildingtoscale.com slash guest. If you got something out of this interview, would you do both us and our guest a favor and share it on your social media accounts? Don't forget to hit subscribe in your player so that you don't miss any future episodes and make sure to reach out to Jeff Chastain on any of the major social media networks or check us out at admentis.com.